Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Sure. Yeah. My name is uh, Tyler Shipley and uh, obviously author of the book Canada in the World um, and some other books and articles and things. Uh, I'm a college professor uh, here in Toronto, uh, originally from Winnipeg, um, which obviously, you know, is an interesting place to be from in terms of colonial history uh, and colonial present. Um, and yeah, I've been doing this work on on capitalism, colonialism in Canada for many, many years. Um, and, and I'm always really grateful for an opportunity to talk about it. So thanks to you guys for, for bringing me in and hopefully, uh, hopefully I can add something to the discussion here today. Oh, I'm sure you can. We have touched on Canadian imperialism, the mining industry, but never gone into detail. We've obviously hinted as some troubles within our foreign policy as well. But your book, Canada in the World, uh, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, it drives home the point that this history that we're currently reconciling with, that we're struggling with, but slowly coming to terms with, at least some of us, and how horrible it has been and, you know, that it continues I think people would be mortified to know the details that that same mindset is the basis of much of our foreign policy throughout the years, right? We typically have a very squeaky clean image, Canada, or peacekeepers, and we don't do these things. But your your book is really an eye-opener in terms of it has the receipts there. It goes through quite a bit of our history from the colonial period. Again, I feel like that's like saying COVID is over, but it goes quite early to present day and we've not really learned from our mistakes. Well, we have learned, but to replicate it. Can you kind of tell us about that argument, you know, without having to, <laughs> you know, give us the complete rundown, but you know what I mean? The whole, the audio book uh, version yeah. here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you actually said it well in, in the same way that COVID is not over and continues to be uh, really destructive and dangerous right now. Uh, colonialism is not over. Colonialism never stopped. It uh, took different forms. I, again, kind of like COVID, uh, you know, it's mutated into different forms. Um, but nevertheless, it remains very much, I would, I would argue, in the DNA of what Canada is. Um, and... That's kind of what I set out to do in the book is actually make that claim. Um, I think I think most people in Canada, at the very least, understand that it was founded on some pretty dark stuff. And obviously, some people in Canada will accept that more than others. But um, I mean, this is a this is a matter of public record that Canada is founded on um, violence and and theft of land. Um, you know, one-sided and manipulative treaties, um, you know, uh, uh, colonial occupation, um, uh, b the breaking of those treaties once they were signed, 
um, all of these things and much worse. Um, and, and I think most people at some level will accept some part of that. Um, but I, I think that even still in the 2020s in Canada, um, you know, led by, by the voices of people like Justin Trudeau, um, the narrative becomes, well, that's a, that's a bad thing that happened in the past. And we're very sorry that this bad thing happened in the past, but it's time to move forward. You know, let's bring in some indigenous dancers to our event, uh, and then we can all feel good about ourselves knowing that we today respect indigenous culture and uh, we don't have to worry about the bad stuff. And that's just nonsense. Um, I mean, it's just absurd and offensive. Um, so in the book, I kind of make the argument that colonialism has two founding dynamics. One is material, one is economic, uh, and it is capitalism. I mean, that's that's fundamentally the reason Canada was created by French and later British settlers. It was created in order to establish a new place in which capitalist profits could be extracted from the land and from the labor that would be mixed with the land. I mean, this is just, um, I think, foundational. Um, and I don't think anyone would really argue against it. There's really no other material compulsion. I'm sure you can find someone, but let's I, not. that's true. I'm sure they exist. Um, but they'd be, they'd be brazenly wrong. Um, it's obvious that that's what's materially motivating, um, the creators of Canada, the, the settlers, and especially, you know, later on in the period when it becomes Canada. Um, and as I argue in the book, this, this necessarily means genocide, it necessarily means that because capitalism is a system where land is private property for uh, the extraction of profits, um, and that's totally fundamentally incompatible with all of the indigenous forms of political economy that existed here. And they were different. Different indigenous nations were obviously very different from one another, but none of them had a... a economic system based on private ownership of land, where one person could own a piece of land and do anything they want on it. No indigenous nation uh, used that type of, of land tenure system. And it's you, you can't have both. You can't have a system of shared stewardship of land and also private ownership of land. They, they can't coexist. So from the standpoint of, of a Canada that's trying to create a capitalist system, um, the indigenous systems have to be destroyed. That is, by definition, genocide. You know, whether it entails um, killing people, which it often did, or uh, forcing them to assimilate into a new system, which Canada also did through the residential school system, among other things, this is genocide. Um, so this is this is part of the founding of Canada. The other part, of course, is the justification for that genocide. Um, because, you know, to, to enact something as horrific as that, you have to tell yourself a story about why it's okay. And that's what I call the colonial imagination, the set of ideas around what we might call white supremacy, um, which, which claim that European civilization was and is more advanced, more civilized, more rational, more scientific, um, and that it, it re represents the future of human civilization. And so anything Europeans do in their interactions with indigenous and colonized people around the world 
is justified by the claim that this, we are the future. White people represent the future. We are the best of what humanity has to offer. We are bringing everyone else into the light with us. And if they don't like it, if they don't accept it, well, that's their, their problem and they're wrong. The, the wise ones among them will join us. Um, and if we have to do some violence to achieve that, then, you know, it's for the greater good. This is the colonial imagination. And I mean, there's lots of different w words we could use to describe it. I like using <laughs> colonial imagination. That's a pretty flowery term. You let, you're pretty generous with that one. I like it because it um, reminds us that this is a fantasy. It reminds us that this is not real. That at no level does any of that exist in real life beyond the imagination of the colonizers. There is no metric upon which you could ever have claimed that European civilization was more advanced uh, in any way. You know, technologically, politically, economically, there, there's no argument that's, that sustains it. And again, I know there are people who still to this day trot out uh, attempts to say, no, no, they really were more advanced, but it falls flat. No serious historian would ever make such a claim. It, it cannot be upheld. It's just pure racism. Um, so I use the term colonial imagination because I like to remind myself and my readers that that this is an ideology that exists totally in the imagination of the colonizers. No one else agrees. I mean, no one else at the time agreed. Um, you know, a funny little side point on that. You'll sometimes hear people say, well, uh, you know, Johnny McDonald, he was a racist. But hey, in those days, everyone was a racist. No, no, they weren't. No, a lot of the white people were racists, but that's not everyone. Um, you wouldn't find very many indigenous people who would say, yeah, yeah, white civilization, it's more advanced. You wouldn't find black people saying, oh yeah, the whites, they're the, they're the best, they're the vanguard. of." Uh, no one else was saying it. So all of this stuff, this white supremacist stuff, um, exists in the imagination of the colonizer. Those two things, the establishment of capitalism and this colonial imagination, they're at the heart of Canada's colonial relations with indigenous people, but they persist throughout Canada's history. And in the book, I jump through, I mean, I work through all of Canada's history and I jump through different moments, whether it's Canada's invasion of El Salvador in the 1930s, Canadian support for fascism in the 30s and 40s. Um, Canada's support for colonial European colonial powers in the 50s and 60s, supporting the Belgians in the Congo, supporting the British in Kenya, supporting the French in Algeria or Vietnam, standing against the independence of uh, colonized people around the world. I mean, as I say to my students, um, you know, for any of my students whose parents or grandparents were born outside of Canada, there is a very, very good chance that Canada did not want their ancestors to have their own country. I mean, you pick up, put your finger on the map of the world, you know, whether you land in, uh, I don't know, Angola or you land in, in um, you know, Cambodia or you land in Brazil, uh, you'll find Canada fighting against materially and in some cases physically fighting against the independence of people in those places. Hold on, Tedler, because I think that would shock people. Like, I need that 
that to sit with people for a little bit because that's surely not in the history books that we are given. We know about our we know about our roles in the great wars roughly. And that is it. How do they manage to do that? Like how is that completely erased from our collective mindset? And I know you can give some modern day examples. So even when it's kind of in front of us, we we aren't generally drawing these parallels like you are. And I'm sure you've got some comrades out there that have seen this and and are arguing this. But, but most Canadians don't know any of this at all. Uh, they're very proud of their country still. And and let's just separate from the complete kind of residential school denial convoy people, but most average Canadians, you know, that want to be able to fly their flag again or whatnot. But uh, how has that been so successful? It's a great question. I sometimes wonder myself how it's been so effective, but I think the answer is actually embedded in that very ideology that I was describing, because it still exists. The colonial imagination is still part of, I think, Canadian culture. I think, Well, I mean, I think it's foundational in Canadian culture. And it's an ideology that says we know best. We are the best. We are the most advanced. We are the most civilized. In today's language, that can translate as we are the most peaceful. We are the most reasonable. We are the ones who can help mediate. Um, you know, we are the responsible ones. And these are the ways that Canada still frames itself. So if you grow up, if you grow up in the Canadian school system and in Canadian pop culture with this understanding that Canadians are good, they are reasonable, they're decent, they're well-intentioned, that's a big one. You know, their intentions are always good. Oh, I mean, they might make some mistakes, but their intentions are always good. Um, this is a modern form, a modern expression of the colonial imagination, and it allows you to ignore those parts of Canadian history that do not fit that narrative, which is a lot of it. Um, and, and that's the part that sometimes amazes me, you know, because... I, even in my lifetime, I witnessed so much of it. You know, I was alive when Canadian peacekeepers went to Somalia and had to leave in disgrace because rather than keeping peace in Somalia, they tortured and killed for fun Somali children. And the regiment had to be disbanded. It came out that they were all incredible white supremacists. Uh, a lot of them had KKK connections and other neo-Nazi connections. Um, I was there. I was alive. This was in the news when I was a kid. Um, and yet it didn't pierce the armor of the story of Canadian goodness the story was told, and Shireen H. Razak has a phenomenal book about this, and particularly about the way that that case somehow got transformed. When it, what, a case that should have said to all of us, 
what is Canada? What is the country that produces this? But instead, the narrative that came out of that experience was Somalia is a very dark and scary place. And Somalians are dark and scary people. And our, our good Canadian boys, they went over there, you know, they were good Canadian boys, but they went there and that place changed them and it brought this darkness out of them. And, you know, they, they didn't have proper support. They didn't feel appreciated. Somalians didn't appreciate that they were there. And, and yes, they made some mistakes, but we have to appreciate the context. And it doesn't change that Canada is fundamentally good and well-intentioned all the rest of the times. <laughs> so, you know, that's how it happens. You know, that's one case. And, and different versions of that get applied any and every time it becomes possible that we might have a window into what Canada really is. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, the entire Canadian Parliament stood and applauded for a guy who had been in the SS, the literal death squads of Nazi Germany. And ever since then, we have been subject to a phenomenal campaign to try to make that into an innocent mistake, a little misunderstanding. That's, I think, how it happens. That's how um, the story of Canadian goodness is perpetuated, because we are all primed to believe it. We want to believe it. In fact, a lot of us who grew up here, it, we, it becomes part of our identity, and people don't want their identity disrupted. They don't want their ideology disrupted. They want to keep flying the flag in the front of their house. Um, and so it's like people are looking for the explanation that can justify this, this isolated bad thing Canada did. They do not want to know that it is not isolated, that it is part of a, a system, a pattern. Um, and so I like to ruin people's day by telling them that it is, in fact, a pattern. Well, one thing that I find interesting is how this doesn't just apply to, to people who, who grew up in Canada, who live in Canada, but also is, is so deeply rooted in the way people view Canada around the world, you know, uh, as someone who is is an immigrant, when you try and tell your family back home, like I'm from Colombia originally, things about Canada, it's it's met with a certain level of disbelief. Like there's this the the idea that this Canada is some utopia of goodness. No, how could it be possible that Canada would ever do any of these things? And that has real consequences when when we take a look, for example, you know, one thing we've been talking a lot about lately uh, is international students and temporary foreign workers who come to Canada with a certain expectation of of their ability to to find prosperity that then they can, you know, deliver back to their families where they come from and are met with the shock to see that that reality is nowhere near what they were told there's real consequences to to that narrative and i mean i know a part of it comes from like the whole better than americanism where like when when <laughs> we're seen as like the good to america's bad but i i'm i honestly don't fully understand how we're not being held more accountable by by other nations who we have continuously exploited it's it's a, it's a shock yeah yeah i mean it is not just not held accountable, but I'm looking back at 
one of the articles you wrote. So again, you might have to reach back a little bit. But you're talking about Guatemala and a mine back in 1978. And I don't know. Can you tell that story? Because in the end, after all of that, you know, there was a bit of celebration surrounding a really dark maneuvering by Canada. Do yeah, you want to tell the story? Sure. That's the, the Inco mine, I think you, you're Absolutely, talking about. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the very, very truncated version of the story is that... Um, Canada supported the well-known CIA overthrow of the Guatemalan government in 1954. Uh, and that was partly uh, because Canadian mining companies like Falcon Bridge and Inco wanted to get into Guatemala uh, and obviously, you know, exploit the land, exploit the resources and the, and the people, and make profits. Um, but after the overthrow of the Guatemalan government, when Guatemalans uh, took up arms in resistance to the dictatorship that had been imposed by the West, they set up in precisely the region that Inco wanted for the mine. And so uh, a particularly brutal uh, member of the Guatemalan military, uh, Carlos Arana, was, who, was, who came to be known as the Butcher of Zacapa, led uh, uh, soldiers into that region uh, to commit massacres um, in order to uh, gain that territory so that the Guatemalan state could then give it to Inco to build a mine, um, which it did. And I mean, the problems surrounding that mine and it's, you know, even before it was built, I mean, there were Guatemalan researchers who who published a report saying, here are all of the impacts this mine is going to have. Um, and they were gunned down in, in Guatemala City uh, on the eve of the opening of the mine so that there would be no criticism. Uh, and, you know, the mine finally opens in, I think, 1978, O Canada is performed by the Guatemalan military band. Uh, and it's this, as you say, celebratory event. Um, and, and one sort of footnote to all of that that I find funny, and this might be what you were sort of thinking about, Jessa, is that um, there was an earthquake in Guatemala around that time. And to repair the Canadian image uh, in Guatemala... Pierre Trudeau's government made a gift of, I don't know how much, but some amount of powdered milk. Uh, and it was supposed to be this symbol of, you know, Canadian generosity. Well, in a time of need, you know, Canadians are there for Guatemalans. Here, have some powdered milk. The gift was useless because most Guatemalans didn't drink milk, couldn't use it. Uh, it wasn't good. I mean, didn't have the stomach, you know, I don't know what stomach biome to handle it. Um, and it wasn't even all that generous because the Canadian milk industry had a massive overstock and they were actually trying to dump it so that the value of the, the milk they did have would go up. What do we got? So, what do we got lying around here? What do you guys look exactly. at the couch? Have we got something we can wrap That's up so and Canadian. give for a gift? Exactly. Exactly. Cringe. So, I mean, you know, there's one example of, of a way that Canada tries to launder its image, um, you know, in the shadow of doing great harm, enormous harm. And Santiago, I think you're right that it's um, there are a lot of people around the world who who believe the Canadian narrative. I I'm I think it's changing. I mean, it's it's changing slowly, but I do think it's changing. Certainly in in Central America, where I've spent a fair bit of time, like it's changed. More people know, 
uh, today than used to. And the mining industry is a big reason for that. I mean, those mines are so horrific and they've made them, they're like cartoon villains. Um, and, and, and it has engendered so much anger. Um, that's part of it. But I also just think that the, the kind of, we're not as bad as America thing, it just doesn't hold as much water, uh, as it used to. And I don't think Canada, um, sits in the shadows as much as it used to. I mean, there was some truth, not in, in, in terms of what Canada was really doing, but on the surface, it would have seemed like there was some truth to the idea that the Americans were far worse than Canada. Um, you know, through the Cold War, for instance, there was a very conscious strategy between Canada and the U.S. that the U.S. would usually go out front and do the most obvious dirty work, and Canada would do a lot of the more subtle, behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, this isn't a conspiracy theory. It was active, um, uh, you know, planning. So Cuba, for instance... Um, after the Cuban Revolution, we all know that the Americans tried to assassinate Fidel. They tried to invade the country, the Bay of Pigs, etc., etc. Canada maintained its embassy, maintained relations with Cuba. We all remember Pierre Trudeau going to Cuba, having his big, you know, uh, adventure there with Fidel. Um, and we're led to think that that means Canada wasn't so bad. Canada was being more reasonable. No. This was all determined between Diefenbaker and Kennedy at the time of the revolution, and Canada maintained its embassy and its relations with Cuba in order to spy on Cuba, which it did. I knew he was Canada going sp- there, and I knew I was getting really mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, Canada spied on Cuba, um, provided intelligence that assisted some of the American attempts to overthrow the revolution, to destroy it, you know, things like sadistic things like Operation Peter Pan. Canada was was providing intelligence to facilitate that. And Cuba knew and busted some Canadian spies. Um, so, I mean, that's one example. Vietnam is another. The Americans were the obvious aggressor in Vietnam. But Canada um, sat on a commission that was supposed to be uh, sort of overseeing the peace and overseeing the negotiations between the two sides. This was the internet, uh, the ICC, the International um, Commission something. I don't know. It's in the book. Forget the name. But it was this committee that Canada uh, was one of the three members of. And they were supposed to be neutral, um, you know, trying to mitigate and, and manage and implement the agreement that had been made in Geneva with respect to the division of Vietnam. Instead, Canada used its role in the commission not only to spy on North Vietnam, but also to communicate threats from the Americans to the North Vietnamese um, and to launder the image of the Vietnam War for the United Nations and the rest of the world. So, you know, there were these ways in the Cold War that Canada did kind of mask its role in a lot of the worst things that the United States was doing. But I would say the mask is largely coming off in the last 20 years. And I think, Santiago, what you were describing is probably shifting. And there's probably there may be a generational shift. It may be that, you know, it's it's younger people um, around the world that have a more clear headed view now of Canada and, and maybe older people that still cling to some of the old mythologies. But I do think it's changing. I think in part the ability to disseminate information independently, repeatedly and like permanently, like everything stays on the Internet is completely obviously different than the history that's been before us. Because I think some of the, you described it really well, use the analogy of not piercing the armor. 
because the events that we do have a collective memory around, especially in our history, they have been woven in, right? They are part of that armor that we put around us to let us think that we're really good, right? And that's done deliberately. You talk about all kinds of statescraft uh, through sport, but there are like many, many ways. We, we did an episode on nationalism, how really innocuously we are, stories are repeated over and over again. Remembrance Day is a great day to highlight only the com- conflicts that we want to and completely skim over the rest. That's not so easy to do anymore. People can consistently be reminding others on a large scale as opposed to, you know, it's just the newspaper, your history books, this outdated encyclopedia to to to, to sift through and, and any academic books that you can get your hands on. But, you know, there is no erasing that. And what we do around the world is can be brought back to us from a completely different perspective now. So when Santiago says, we keep going back to Santiago's comment about how we appear around the world. And when he first said that, I was like, well, sure as fuck, the people in this village <laughs> don't have that view anymore. And and now we can hear their stories more easily, you know, through storytellers like yourself, but also through, you know, TikTok and, and see firsthand this, you know, especially the cartoon villains you describe and the mining that goes on in, in South America with indigenous peoples. And mining is like one of those industries that we are so prevalent in and weapons that we don't brag about. When we're showing those uh, slideshows of Canada in the background, right, when someone's doing the anthem and those don't, you know, mine, miners don't show up there, even though we, that's a massive industry for us. And, and surely there's not somebody there assembling bomb parts or whatever the, What's the armored vehicles it- that we're sending to Ukraine. Like that's not really part of our, our identity on, on purpose, even though it's a huge part of our economy. Is it seventy percent of mining companies are around the world are Canadian? Something something ridiculous like that, right? It's huge. I forget the exact number. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge, and it's partly because uh, as the mining industry developed in Canada, uh, the Canadian government um, basically deregulated and gave mining companies extraordinary power, much more so than in other countries. And so there are even you know, American mining companies that will will set up in Canada uh, and and set their headquarters in Canada so that they can benefit from the extremely lax regulation of the mining industry in Canada. Americans, Americans are coming for our lax yeah. mining regulations. So that's that's comforting. <laughs> right? That, yeah. That says a lot. But you're right, they they are getting a huge profile now. It, it, they have protests outside of their offices occasionally. And it is something that's coming more to the forefront. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I think, you know, um, this is one of the ways that the mask is coming off. I think there are several. Um, I, I don't... I, I think that Canada was through the Cold War because it was very consciously trying to be a behind-the-scenes member of the Imperial Club... Um, it was able to kind of hide a little bit and, and get away with um, creating that mythology of itself as the peacekeeper or the broker of, uh, of good intentions and so on. But I think that that's I think it was always a bit more flimsy than we realized. I think Canadians always believed it hook, line and sinker because we wanted to, of course, as I said. Um, 
but people around the world actually have been very critical. Um, you know, in a lot of the cases I look at, when I look at specific incidents, you know, um, the Caborabasa Dam, uh, which was a project uh, of Portuguese colonialism, South African apartheid, the Rhodesian state, all of the right-wing racist forces in Southern Africa were sort of part of this mega project, this sort of Portuguese mega project in Mozambique. Uh, and Canada was in there like a dirty shirt uh, with these these right wing regimes, and the the Mozambican uh, resistance uh, very specifically named Canada, uh, highlighted the Canadian role, and you find this when you look at these cases. I mean, I mentioned briefly the invasion of El Salvador in the 1930s. It was a Canadian company. International Power, based in Montreal, owned by I.W. Killam of the Killam Foundation and the Killam Scholarships and Killam Grants that and all that. That sounds ominous. It's a, yeah, the name is not ideal given the outcomes. Um, I.W. Killam's company was the target of the Salvadoran protest movement that, that had emerged into a revolution by the early 30s um, and which prompted the Salvadoran government to ask for help in crushing this rebellion and, you know, which led to the Canadian Navy being sent so that in the end, 40,000 Salvadoran peasants were massacred uh, by the by the Salvadoran state with Canadian ships in the harbor watching and, and, and presiding over this all on behalf, at least in part, of a Canadian company. And it was known to be a Canadian company. So, I mean, I think that Canada did a really good PR job for a stretch there in the middle of the Cold War. But ultimately, I think I trust I trust the people, broadly speaking, the people of the colonized world, um, that instinctively they, they do come around to seeing reality. You're not going to go to Afghanistan and find anyone who believes that Canada is some great peacekeeper. Uh, you're not going to get that in much of the Middle East uh, I know in my experiences in Central America that that mythology is dying. Uh, my sense is that it's starting to to fall apart elsewhere too. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like it's an important thing to to have on our agenda. It's important to have in our minds. Um, but I, I I do think the mask is slipping. See, in a way, I find comfort in that because you know you want people to know what's up, but. Although it's egregious, that that subversive spying role perhaps is far less destructive than the role the Americans take. And if we're kind of once the mask completely comes off, is there any point in spending energy being in the background or do we then fully embrace our imperialist military role and become right outward aggressors yeah and, and to add on to that i mean like the mask is fully slipped when we talk to like the united about the united states about france right they're still carrying out all of these atrocities they're still oppressing countless nations around the world it hasn't affected like their image hasn't affected their ability to do so and I guess the question is, like, if the goal is to, you know, change it so that we're no longer that imperial power, well, 
what the hell do we do if exposing it isn't going to do it? Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think that's a pretty important point. Like, you know, um, knowing that Canada is bad may be a first step, but it's a small first step. Um, because fundamentally, uh, I mean, you can look, we can talk about what's happening in, in Palestine right now. Uh, I think a large part of the world fully, fully understands how bad Israel is, how incredibly over-the-top violent Israel is, the fact that they make openly genocidal remarks that people, members of the government will literally call Palestinians human animals. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people do know what's up. Um, and yet, uh, the state of Israel continues to exist, continues to kill people in Palestine. So I, I think, you know, it's important to remember that change happens from resistance, not from awareness, right? Awareness is, awareness is cheap. Uh, it takes resistance to really make change. And I think that applies to Canada too. Um, you know, 20 years, Canada occupied Afghanistan. That's a really long time. And that, I think, for me, that's the, a really sort of pivotal, transformative moment in terms of Canada taking a much more active imperialist role in the world. Um, and that's the kind of thing that the Canada of the Cold War wouldn't have done. It would have, Canada would have supported it in a range of sideways. Um, but, you know, not since the Korean War had Canada been so uh, active in, in, a, in a colonial war as it was in Afghanistan. Um, and it just keeps telling the same stories. It just keeps telling the same narratives. And Afghanistan was actually a, almost a perfect mirror of Canadian colonialism because everything that Canadians said about Afghanistan was exactly what they had said about indigenous peoples. Uh, you know, there's a soldier who says, uh, we're in a place, he's talking about Afghanistan, he says, we're in a place that's 2,000 years behind. It's like walking with people from National Geographic. Um, right? This is an explicit expression of the white supremacy that founded Canada, the claim that we, the white people, are the future. And all of the non-white and colonized people of the world, they are the past. They are primitive. They are backwards. They are, you know, destined to be on the dustbin of history while we will be the avant-garde of the future of humanity. Um, and these are claims that Canadian soldiers made again and again and again in different forms, in different words, right? You know, we're here to, we're here to uh, help girls go to school. That was something that was repeated constantly during the Canadian occupation. And on the surface, that sounds like maybe a sort of a feminist thing, a good thing. In fact, it was just an expression of white supremacy. It was a claim that said Afghans don't know how to run a modern society. Afghans are so backwards that they haven't even figured out to let girls go to school. This was inaccurate because in the 1970s, Afghanistan had a robust civil society and communist movement um, that had pressured to change the Afghan state and in fact had led to women being in school, being active members of society, I mean, with limitations, obviously, but... Uh, a, a progressive path was taking place in Afghanistan, independent of any colonial occupation. That all ended, of course, when the United States backed the Mujahideen reactionary fighters to drag Afghanistan into civil war in the 80s, which then gave rise to the Taliban, which led into the invasion. And so by the time these Canadian soldiers are arriving and saying, 
these people don't even let girls go to school. I mean, they're just so divorced from reality. Um, but just as when they claimed indigenous people were backwards and primitive and savage, they were wrong. They were wrong and they were making these claims in order to justify their own colonial occupation. They were there to justify the fact that Canadian companies, Kilo Gold Mines, Canaccord Financial, SNC-Lavalin, were squeezing Afghanistan for profits, sucking resources out of that country and back to Bay Street, a few, you know, a couple city blocks away from where I am. Like, that's what was happening in Afghanistan. It was capitalism. It was a predatory form of capitalism, colonial capitalism, justified by the colonial imagination, the story that Canadians told themselves about who they are and who Afghans are. It's the same story told again and again and again. Um, and I mean, yeah, having awareness of that, I think it helps. I think it's a starting point. But ultimately, I mean, it has to be resisted. It has to be fought. It has to, it has to, something has to make the Canadian ruling class stop doing this. Um, and it's not going to be my book. <laughs> I'm proud of the book, but it's not going to be that. I know we talked a lot about foreign policy, but early on you mentioned that this isn't just, this mindset that we're talking about isn't just at the root of how we interact with other nations and indigenous people, but it's part of our identity and that makes it even a harder hurdle. So, you know, when I talk to my family and I vent, right, do you know we do this? Do you know we do that? You know, I'm going to get off here and I, because I've now I've got more tidbits to enrage people. And it's going to be like, are, you know, people can't see me. They'll be very skeptical. And it, it'll, they almost, yeah, you'll see it in their face. Like they don't even want to hear it. But, but I think, there are more and more, and thankfully, it's the only good thing that came out of the convoy is a bit of a rejection of this overt nationalism that is, especially that version that is just so steeped in white supremacy, and a rejection even of images like our flag and the poppy. There's more space for that to be normalized, right? Rejecting nationalism altogether. At, and the discussion of borders and, and all of that. Like, there are definitely cracks there for us to get into and blow up a little bit, proverbially. proverbially. Forget it, just take that word out. We'll just blow them up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you talk a lot about the bad side, though. You know, the statescraft that just does the justification for us in sport. I thought it would be fun to spend a little bit of time on that because I, I've i shared this article with so many people and it's one Tyler wrote quite a while ago, but I'm going to link it in the show notes. It talks about soccer. He's also talked about hockey. And I think people like think Don Cherry right away and, and the things that he would say to us and, and that becomes a little bit more obvious. But can you share with us maybe the less obvious aspects of sport? and statescraft that we probably don't question very much. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, to the question of why are we still today so um, steeped in the, the ideology of the colonial imagination and Canadian goodness and Canadian generosity and all these things? Well, I mean, sports is one of the places where I think it, you get a really good 
um, view of how those ideas get reproduced. You know, you're at a sports event, uh, you know, you're there to watch the Blue Jays and it's a Sunday and so they're doing the Sunday salute. And so in between innings, you know, they highlight some member of the Canadian military and... Uh, Is that a real thing? It was. I, I think they've stopped it for now, but for years, yeah, I protested one of them. <laughs> we, we did a big protest outside the dome. But um, yeah, they would do the Sunday salute and it would just be, you know, take a moment, everyone, stand, remove your cap, clap if you can, da 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 for Corporal so-and-so who served in this place and that place and this place and, and whatever. Never any discussion of what happened in those places. Never any discussion of why Canada was there, what Canada was trying to accomplish. Just stop and be thankful because if you like your life and if you feel good about your life, this member of the Canadian military is what gave you that. And that's a our freedom. Yeah, right. Your freedom, your democracy, your human rights, everything good came from the military, which is just egregiously false. I mean, just 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 a, you just, can say horseshit. Yeah, absolute fucking horseshit. Um, and you know, I mean, and we and there's a and there's a million there's a paper trail. I mean, the military never never earned individual Canadians any of their civil rights. They were all won through struggle, usually through the union movement, usually through the labor movement. It was labor struggles that gave us almost all the rights we have. Uh, and it was always cops and troops that were, were battling against the labor movement and the working class movement in trying to get those rights in the first place. Um, I'm going to play that clip on Remembrance please Day. Please do. <laughs> please do. It'll get me some hate. It'll get me some hate on Twitter, but I'm used to that by now. Um, yeah, you know, so, well, I mean, look, World War One. I, I mean, we talk about briefly World War One In 1917, Canada is not uh, fighting for freedom and democracy and human rights around the world. It's fighting for the British Empire. And when people in Canada say, you know what, we're sick of dying for the British Empire, quit conscripting us. The Canadian military is brought to Quebec City to open fire on the protesters against conscription. Four people in Quebec City are murdered by the Canadian military for saying, we don't want to go to Europe and die in a trench. You, I mean, there's just no way you can argue that the Canadian military was the guarantor of our rights. It was the Canadian military that was trying to stop us from having rights. And yet, flash forward to 2014, and you're enjoying a beer, an overpriced, you know, uh, watery beer at the Sky Dome. And, uh, you know, now you're clapping for some troop who fought in this place and that place and this place and, and is the reason you have such a good life. Right. I mean, that's always how it's framed. I just want to add a personal anecdote. My husband knows never to let me go to Armed Forces Day at Toronto FC. We used to be season seat holders and... They were usually good games, like it was a summer game, usually a weekend game, which we hardly ever got anymore. And uh, it would be like either it came with a huge disclaimer, like, please, please. I already don't stand for the anthem. So it's just like this awkward kind of, oh, uh, yeah, I'm with her. But Armed Forces Day, he knew I would just be a different level of obnoxious. And it would just better if I maybe missed that game altogether. So I acted skeptical 
about the Blue Jays. I used to go to the Blue Jays as well quite a bit, but I, I, I don't know if I was ever subjected to Salute Sunday, but it's absolutely part of the game all of them yeah no they're all and doing it they're all doing it and i'm 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 with you by the way i always actually try to make sure that i'm in the washroom during the anthems um that's that's where i like to be <laughs> i should try that yeah symbolically it feels so good awkward. yeah it, yeah exactly i don't have to make a scene uh and and symbolically it feels like the right place to be during that but um yeah i i mean these things are ubiquitous they're they're deeply entrenched in hockey i mean hockey right now is in the process of getting rid of all of the promotional events that have anything to do with indigenous rights, pride, anything progressive at all. But of course, they're holding on to all of their military appreciation stuff. So, uh, you know, I mean, anything woke, anything Tyler. woke is out. Uh, but the Jets have a new jersey that is directly uh, related to, I don't know, some fighter jet from the 1940s. Like it's 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 all there and it's run through so deeply and. It encourages a kind of thoughtless patriotism and and thoughtless support for the military. Um, It discourages you from ever actively asking questions about those specific actual events. Um, You know, and I remember it especially with with kind of the um, the mantra support the troops, which we don't hear as much now because. Afghanistan has. I still see the yellow ribbon bumper. Oh yeah. Magnets. Oh, they're still out there, and they're, they're on every cop car you can bet. And um, you know that support the troops thing was always it always the, the narrative was always this. Listen, you may or may not like the mission in Afghanistan. You might have your petty little criticisms of the mission in Afghanistan, but you better support the troops. The troops didn't decide the mission. The troops didn't plot out every element of the mission. They do the do that. The troops are just out there fighting, <laughs> putting their life on the line so that you can have a good life, so that you don't have to be over there doing it. And so, you know, that's how... That's why they break it down to those personal stories, exactly. right? Like, here's Joe, and he went over because he loves being Canadian. Exactly. and he wanted to make a better life for the girls of Afghanistan. Exactly, exactly. That's what he thought, you know, so... Exactly. We're good. And so it just, I mean, it's designed to make you actively stop asking questions about the conflict itself. Um, and, and yeah, sports is one place in which that happens. It's one, obviously, it's a fruitful, you know, spot for that to happen. And the demographics of, of, of you know, sports fans often lends itself to, to that. I mean, look, there's reasons that sports in particular works, but it's it happens everywhere. It happens in other elements, too. It's interesting, though, because, like, I, I mean, as a, as a fan of soccer, it's it's quite the opposite sometimes, in other parts of the world, like soccer has been a place to organize resistance in many places. So there are many soccer clubs. Celtic comes to mind, uh, you know, Rajo Vallecano in, in Spain uh, comes to mind, which have are openly extremely like very left, very. And, and meanwhile, the culture here never really uh, adopted such a thing like it's not that sports can't be that it's more that the culture of sports in the americas has it has purposely been designed and i have an answer for why i think that is and i think it's it has a lot to do with the specific nature of a place like canada and the united states um and and the fact that these are settler colonial states um which is a particular type of of state where 
where the 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 working classes, even the working classes in a place like Canada, have been have bought into colonialism and white supremacy and all of those things, all of those very very uh, regressive and and ruling class ideologies, ideologies that support the ruling class. You know, you would think, you would you would hope that working class people could look at something like nationalism and say, hang on a minute. Like, just wait a second. I'm supposed to have deep love for everyone who happens to be born in this place, which includes me and all my friends and my community who are poor, and also the landlord that exploits us, and the boss that exploits us, and the government that exploits us? That doesn't make any fucking sense. You'd think we would be able to do that, and in some places, working classes do actually have that, especially places that have long histories of colonialism, and being on the receiving end of it, I mean, places that were colonized, they do have working classes that see through that. But in a place like Canada, the working class was always being brought into the ideology of settlerism, of the ruling class. If you think about what is happening when Canada's being established, there's not that many soldiers, there's not that many troops who can carry out the, the, the literal genocide and the theft of the land that became Canada. It relied on settlers, individual settlers doing a lot of the groundwork, literally taking up the farms, taking up the land, right? And, and holding it down and arming themselves to prevent anyone from taking it back from them. And you know, a lot of those settlers were initially poor working class people from places like England, which was generating these massive inequalities in capitalism, creating these, you know, oppressed working classes, and then promising them a ticket out of the working class by giving them space on a boat and a piece of land in Canada. And all of a sudden, people who were in the working class now have an emotional and political investment in the idea of Canada, because that's going to be their way to a better life. And the only thing between me, the settler, and this better life is all these indigenous people who are saying I can't actually have the land. I mean, right there you have the construction of a, a type of working class that's going to be reactionary. Not every single person, not every single time, but in its overall political um, sort of orientation, a settler working class views itself as kind of wrapped up in the settler project. That's how Canada's formed. So if you think about that class of settler and the ideology that they have, which they teach to their kids, who teach it to their kids and to their kids, and you kind of start to see why, you know, even all these generations later, there isn't the same kind of anti-capitalist, anti-colonial working class movements that might you know, build a more radical politics around their local sports team, right? Which is super cool when it happens, and it does happen in other parts of the world, but it just doesn't here. Um, most of the Canadian working class views itself as a temporarily disgraced member of the bourgeoisie, right? You know, just waiting for the the crypto boom or or whatever it is that's going to pull them into the the uh, comfortable middle class life that that they are entitled to. Um, and, and happy to blame someone else other than the ruling class for their problems, right? You have a, a, a working class in Canada that is very quick to blame, whether it's Muslims, whether it's Asians, uh, whether it's gays and lesbians and trans kids, I mean, whoever, find someone to blame so that I don't have to blame 
you know, the government and the banks and, and the owners of these big companies uh, and Canada itself. So mm -hmm. it is. That part's so essential. That, that, that's what, what keeps it together. You know, it makes me think of, uh, I was just, you know, up uh, Thanksgiving, you know, uh, where you have those conversations. And I was, I was thinking about that exact kind of train of thought because I was hearing people, you know, start to blame different groups for different things. And I would, I was trying to like get them to realize that point. And it's interesting because when you, when you, when you, don't when you don't try and argue against what they're arguing but you try and like redirect them to who they're actually supposed to blame to the ruling class most of the time in my experience people are actually quite open to that they're just not exposed to that many of those arguments it's not typically what they think of but but when you tell them hey why are you blaming you know oh you think indigenous people are trying to get ahead uh take advantage of 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 residential school treatment uh to to get ahead why are you blaming them for this? Like, why are you focusing on them when there's this whole ruling class that's getting away like bandits? And and then that yeah, because it's get logical, it's rational. I mean, it it right? makes sense if we, you know, if we if we weren't so hoodwinked by the colonial fucking imagination, then we'd be in a much better position to build a working class movement, right? And because it's all pretty obvious, Galen Weston is the enemy. <laughs> Galen Weston is the problem. And he's the problem for for most people in the working class, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender or sexuality. Galen Weston is still going to be the problem. And, you know, it, it's in Galen Weston's interest to make sure that we don't think that way. Um, right. I mean, that's a big part of ruling class ideology is to keep the working classes divided. And obviously uh, in a settler society like Canada, racism is is one of the best ways to do it and, and always has been so. Yeah, I mean, again, big challenges here, right, in terms of thinking about how do we push back against all of this, identifying it, being aware of it, like this all helps, but there's also just a huge amount of groundwork to do, um, direct action to take, you know, uh, movements to organize, um, to, to directly push back against these things, and and that can feel daunting uh, in somewhere like Canada, where there isn't a lot of it, but... Um, I am always, I always do try to, to at the very least point people in the direction of indigenous struggles because any pushback against the Canadian state, the, the state apparatus, the thing that is Canada that keeps us perpetually locked into uh, all of this shit, um, you know, indigenous movements are positioned to directly confront the Canadian state. They view themselves as... Uh, having been colonized by the Canadian state, they view the Canadian state as their principal antagonist, correctly, I think, um, and and they are willing to confront the Canadian state directly on these things. Um, so I do think that any kind of revolutionary project in Canada has to be rooted in those indigenous struggles, um, and and you know for the rest of us uh, who are not indigenous. Uh, you know, I think a, a really good place to start is doing direct solidarity work with those Indigenous struggles. Speaking of Indigenous struggles, I think perhaps this colonial imagination and the settler mindset is a huge barrier in Palestinian solidarity right now. 
and I couldn't help but think of that, especially when you described how the RCMP and the Canadian government would rely on settlers to do the job of colonialism. We see that particularly in the West Bank, where it's not necessarily IDF soldiers, although they may help clear the way, but that settlers take that really active role. And that mindset is very deep there. And so it's no wonder that even perhaps we do have material interest in Israel continuing its apartheid. But there's a real ideological need to prop that up, that model, because it's so identical to what you described there. And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, but you, in a roundabout way, ended up answering it, I think, for us. I don't if you want to add to that as well, just to help us understand, because like the last episode we did, Santiago and I... We're struggling. It feels like the twilight zone where, like you said, most people understand what is happening at the hands of the state of Israel and they support indigenous resistance. So I'm not talking about the far right. Like I'm talking about people who some of our comrades who understand the need for indigenous resistance. They understand the detriments of colonialization, but yet are really struggling with this particular issue and remaining standing for Palestine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you got it. You nailed it. Like, it is the the absolutely sort of parallel uh, foundation of Israel, um, parallel to Canada, that is, uh, you know, the establishment of a settler colonial state in, in many of the same ways. And by the way, with Canadian assistance, Canada played an active role in in that process in in the 1940s, um, and and I think that is precisely what you know at, at a deep sort of almost psychological level um, is a roadblock for a lot of Canadians who might otherwise offer a more full throated um, solidarity for Palestine uh, because because Israel is a a you know, slightly, you know, modernized version of precisely the same thing Canada was. It's a, it's a settler colonial state. Uh, and if, if the world got together and said, okay, we're done with settler colonialism, this is fucked, you can't do this anymore, then what would that mean for Canada? Yes, right? What would that, I mean, if, if Palestine... That scares people. It does, it does. Because if Palestine got its freedom, um, then you have essentially the basis for indigenous people here gaining their freedom and, and the actual decolonization of Canada, um, which look, a lot of people on uh, certainly a lot of liberals, but even, yeah, a lot of leftists, um, may talk big about decolonize this, decolonize your mind, you know, decolonize the school. Land back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But they don't mean they it. They don't mean it. Um, and, and when push comes to shove, um, the actual concrete idea of this land becoming indigenous sovereign territory uh, terrifies them, just as it terrifies Israeli settlers, um, who are indeed, as you said, the vanguard of Israeli colonialism. Um, so, I mean, I think that's part of the stumbling block. And, and again, it, it comes back to the deep DNA of Canada, uh, of what Canada is and what Canadian settlers were and by extension, are. Uh, and, you know, to your point uh, earlier, Santiago, we keep coming back to it, but it's an important one about, 
the perception of Canada elsewhere, and certainly, you know, if we think about what does it mean to be an immigrant, a more recent immigrant in Canada, you know, someone who who's come to Canada in the last 50 years, let's say, um, and and holds a lot of those views. Oh, Canada is a, a, a place of hope, a place of possibility. Look what it's given us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm obviously more sympathetic in a lot of those cases because there's obviously usually reasons why people um, uh, were looking for a place of hope. Canada, by the way, is often the reason. I mean, Canada, Canada create, you know, Canada participates <laughs> yeah, in creating say. a crisis in Chile <laughs> and then, you know, so generously allows Chilean immigrants, you know, refugees from Pinochet's Chile, even as Canada supporting Pinochet. So, right. But, but nevertheless, we can say the same about Ukraine. Uh, yeah. Totally, obviously, right? And so many. Tyler's got a, I got a list. list. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> even want to start like myself because those pin in a map and it would right just be exactly, full. yeah. Um, so you can understand why people, in some cases, will see Canada as having offered them refuge, um, you know, and, and a better and, and better possibilities, even if that didn't end up being true. Um, but that, as much as I may have some sympathy for it that still can replicate some of the same settler colonial ideologies, right? At some level, um, you know, as people become, for one reason or another, as people become emotionally and politically invested in the Canadian state, they're becoming emotionally and politically invested in a state that's founded on genocide and conquest and that doesn't have a legitimate right to the land it uses. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really difficult thing for somebody to... To, to to accept because you know this idea of like all of those hopes and dreams the idea of the canadian dream to actually accept that that was wrong and that maybe it was even a mistake i mean like in certain cases there are situations now where countries where people have come from are now doing better life there is better than it is in canada and to have lost you know your homeland and to now be here and it's a difficult thing to accept and people find a lot of like it creates that cognitive dissonance where people find a lot of other things sure. to blame totally. instead of accepting that. Totally. It is. It's incredibly and, and, painful. and like I say, right, and these are cases where I'm a lot more sympathetic. You know, I can I can I can understand some of the reasons for that dissonance and and so I have a lot more empathy in, in those cases, as opposed to say just, you know, descendant of white settlers who just wants to wave the flag and whatever. But one thing that I think, you know, it, it, when we're having conversations, you know, with people in those situations, one thing that I find helpful is to remember that in truth, a, a decolonized Canada would almost definitely provide a better life for most people. Um, Canada as it stands does not provide a good life for most people. And it especially doesn't provide a good life for most immigrants, for most people of color. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, follow through on the promises that it, it makes. And you're kind of saying that a decolonized Canada where Amazon isn't allowed to exploit your labor, where you don't have to work at Tim Hortons in order to survive where you are not at the um, absolute mercy 
of a predatory landlord for the very roof over your head, where you can't be evicted and kicked out because that landlord wants to rent, you know, so, so-called renovate and, and bump the rent by $1,000. Um, that's a better world. That's a better life for most people. And when I think about it in those terms, I am perfectly willing to roll the dice on um, a non-capitalist indigenous indigenous um, society and, and, you know, put my faith in the fact that if I am in solidarity with that struggle, uh, if I try to if I try to participate in the building of that world, um, that I, too, will have a better life from it than the one that Canada offers me now. Canada does not offer us very much. Um, but of course, naturally, and, and this is always a roadblock to revolution, people are afraid to lose the little bit they have. Uh, the little bit I have is at least it's the secure. The devil you know. Yeah, the devil you know. I don't want to you know, roll the dice on. And I get that. That's fair. There's, hey, revolution is not a tea party. It's not, uh, it's not a picnic. But I, I do think fundamentally we all, all except the very rich and the very racist. <laughs> if you're among <laughs> the very rich and the very racist... <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. You're not going to have you know? any fun in the new world. Land back is not going to be your cup of tea. <laughs> but outside of the very rich and the very racist, I think we all stand to gain from land back. We all stand to gain from a decolonized Canada where some of the worst things about this place, the most predatory, exploitative things about this place are no longer in place. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to roll the dice on that. Um, so, Well, we're going to end it on that that positive note, because I usually try to wait for one, right? We can't end on a downer. Now we just need the blueprints of decolonization. Don't worry, Tyler, we're not going to quiz you on that right now. That's a process. We know that. But thank you for coming in today and giving us all kinds of tidbits that really did drive that point home on how invasive colonialism is not just with the indigenous populations here in Canada, but in what we thought was our very rosy foreign policy. Well, we didn't. Our audience is a little more intelligent than that, but they're going to have a whole lot of stories that they can bring back to their families next Thanksgiving or at Christmas and just like, you bet you didn't know this part of Canadian history. So if enough people keep telling these stories, they will be woven in and we can start to kind of break that armor down. Thank you so much, Tyler, for your time and all of your work. And I will be sure to link the audience back to a ton of it. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.